Financial Residency is proud to bring you Grand Rounds with Dr. Tammy. Each week, Tammy Krause explores a new topic related to achieving financial independence by building and protecting your wealth. She invites guests who are experts in their fields who will share honest and valuable advice on a variety of topics. If you have an idea for a podcast, please email Tammy, that's T-A-M-M-Y, at financialresidency.com. Now grab your front row seat to this week's Grand Rounds. Hi, and welcome back to Grand Rounds. This is your host, Dr. Tammy, and I've got John Apino back with me. Hey, John, how are you? Hey, I am good. One of the favorite parts of my week is uh, hopping <laughs> on and chatting with you. So I love the uh, financial residency platform and everything you guys do. And I love chatting with you on whatever topics that we can provide help on. I'm going to have to send you a check again for saying nice things about me. Oh, too. Oh, oh, come, on. <laughs> come on. Well, I know we're coming up on the end of residency and fellowship training. So a lot of people are getting ready to make transitions. I thought we could just talk this week about what to expect in the next, you know, what, six weeks of residency fellowship, and then maybe into the next six to 12 months of being a new attending. Yeah, I think that sounds like a great idea. I mean, there's so many out of the thousands and thousands of people who we helped last year, a big majority of them are going through that transition process. And I think it's good for everybody to hear kind of maybe what they think, and then kind of maybe some advice and everything along the way from you know yourself, of course, and myself and our friend, where we talk about people who wish they would have done things differently sometimes. So yeah, I think it's a great topic to bring up this time of year. Absolutely. Well, I know a lot of people are going to take a break between leaving residency and fellowship and then starting their new attending position job. Do you have any advice for them for managing finances between that, you know, maybe four to eight week gap that a lot of people take? So obviously, I think that's a fantastic idea, by the way. So physicians, obviously, they've worked their tail off during med school. They worked their tail off in residency and or fellowship. And now they're going to jump into the real world, if you say. And most people don't jump into the real world thinking, okay, now I can just work 30, 40 hours a week and slack off, right? People say, I want to get busy. I want to work a lot. I want to do well. I want to get a bonus. I want to prove that I'm partnership capable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Pay off the um, loans. Pay off the loans, exactly. So <laughs> when someone says, I want to take a break, first off, I think you'll never regret that, right? I mean, sure, you won't start making more money sooner. So it might cost you at the end of the day $30,000 if you're not working a month, maybe, or depending on your specialty and your compensation. But I don't think you'll ever regret taking the time off. I constantly ask my 60-year-old self, I'm 44, I ask my 60-year-old self what to do. And I think most physicians who ask their older self, should I take some time off during this window? Because you likely won't have that window again, unless you're changing jobs. I think your older self will always say, heck yeah, and go travel or go do something fun. And it's nice. I saw the World Health Organization just officially ended the pandemic yes. uh, last week, I think it was. So now we don't have to worry about travel restrictions. We can go places and see the world. And I think this is a great time for physicians to do that. As you know, and of course, as they know, physicians... As a trainee, you don't make a whole lot of money to save. You may have family, you may have expenses like rents, maybe trying to save for retirement or save for a down payment on a house or an apartment. So taking time off is challenging. It's challenging, one, just because it costly to not work, especially when you're a physician and your earning capacity is so high. But of course, you're not earning any income, but you also have things that are covered by an employment position, like a residency program or an employed position at a hospital or a clinic. Things like insurances, so things through like your medical insurance. 
how are you covering yourself for medical insurance? Know your current policy. Know if you can buy Cobra, you should be able to. And of course, if you can buy it upfront or if it's okay if you retro buy it, there's some asterisks within policies where you may have a 90-day window to retro buy it and cover yourself if you have a major incident, but it might be cheaper to pay out of pocket 100 bucks or 200 bucks for a visit here or there if you need. Your medical insurance is super important. Last thing you want is you come into a new job and you end up having an accident before and you're out 70 grand in the hole with some kind of surgery before you even saw your position. The other thing, obviously, it's a great time to buy disability insurance, to buy life insurance, to kind of set those things up for yourself come up with a financial plan. Those do cost money. So again, you're not working and you're making all these decisions that cost money, right? If it's traveling or if it's just not working and enjoying your time at the gym or on long walks and dinner with friends, it's costly not to work. But again, I think it's a great idea for everybody. How do you bridge that gap? Well, depending on your contract terms, you may have a signing bonus, which provided you cash up front. And now you can use that for your living expenses as you proceed to start your position. But of course, you may already have spent that on down payments for like an apartment or a down payment on a house. Maybe you had to cover your relocation up front and they'll reimburse you six weeks after you start maybe, right? So maybe that money's already gone or like a lot of physicians, they don't have a signing bonus, they have a commencement bonus. So you don't have any money yet. And when you start working, you'll get a commencement bonus. So what do you do in the interim? Well, there's not a lot of options, right? I mean, you could borrow money from friends and family. That's always an option. Most physicians are good for the money. I think the default rate with physicians in debt is very, very low, which means it's easy also to get credit and borrow from a lender. There's banks that'll do it. There's some physician-specific lenders out there. Doc to doc I know, is one of them that does it. And I think they're a great platform for somebody who wants to hop on and just grab a you know $25,000 loan to cover them for a month as they're not working. You may be able to ask for an advance from your employer. The other option, which I know nobody likes, especially listening to a financial residency podcast, is credit cards. So, you know, you can just swipe the credit card and hopefully you have enough balance left. But I recommend not doing that. That could be costly on the back end with the interest rates that credit cards charge. So I think it's important to have a plan, I guess, as I continue on and on. It's important to have a plan with what you want to do during that one month off or six weeks off. It's also great, I think, to have a financial plan, not just a plan with what I want to do and how do I want to live my life and enjoy my time away, but also how do I make sure that I come out of it in a position of somewhat strength, knowing that not working and spending money for a month or two might be, might put you a little behind the ball, but in the long game of life, of course, I think it's a benefit. So I think it's like a financial plan as long as it's purposeful and not, I don't know how I'm going to do it. So I'm going to swipe the card for everything. I think they'll be winning. I might back up for just a second. We had just had Larry Keller on the show a few weeks ago talking about disability insurance. And we talked about a lot of residency and fellowship programs. The hospitals have negotiated guaranteed standard issue plans for those people, but you have to sign up while you're a resident or fellow to get those prices. So I might just reiterate to anyone listening that you might check with your institution before you leave to see if you're able to get a guaranteed standard issue plan especially women, they might be able to get a unisex rate versus paying a female rate, which will save a lot of money. Yeah. And I'm not a disability. Me either. (laughs) I've talked to Larry. He's fantastic. And obviously brilliant at his craft. But I have heard stories. You you were talking about a physician taking time away from a gap to do whatever, to travel, to hang Mm -hmm. out, ride their bikes, go on hikes. 
if you weigh, let's say you're a surgeon and you fall off a bike during your month off, you know, mm -hmm. time, you hurt your wrist and you think, okay, maybe it's not that bad, but you know, you go in, maybe you, know, you get care for it, whatever, and I'll worry about my disability insurance later. And two months later, you go to buy it. It could be an excluded condition. And so it's important to know that I'm sure there's a, I don't want to say there's never a too early to buy disability insurance. I'm sure there is. But sooner when you're healthy, the better, because I think your everything works. There's no conditions that might be, you know, asterisk. And I believe the cost is less, like you said. So that's one of those things I think that people should definitely not delay on. Absolutely. And then, you know, you and I were talking before the show, rent versus buy. Yeah. People are going to new jobs. I guess I'm kind of mixed on the issue. Houses have gone up historically every year and you gain equity into your purchase. And so from that standpoint, I think, well, buying always makes sense. But you always hear the horror stories and the statistics are high that people don't always stay with their first job. Do you have any recommendations yeah. from your standpoint? No, I think everyone should just do their own individual calculation. And this is where there's mm -hmm. not like, I wouldn't say there's a policy that lines up for everybody. I'm not a financial advisor, but I feel like I've been pretty astute with my personal finances over the past 20 years. I think everyone has their own individual story, right? Some people want homeownership, but sometimes homeownership is more expensive with maintenance and upgrades and costs. If you're only going to be there for a year or two, there's transaction costs to selling a house. And so maybe okay. the market goes up by a little bit, but the transaction cost is too great. You have taxes now, which you don't have if you rent. You have like I said, maintenance and a lot of those things that you don't have if you rent. And was, I've seen so many places in our town and building up everywhere as far as apartments and apartments and apartments. And then there's a lot of people buying residential real estate to rent now. So I know the rental market, there's a lot of places to rent and buying real estate is becoming more restrictive. But the great thing is if you want to buy, and I think that's a, I mean, it was my dream when I was finishing my training and coming out with my first position which is younger than a physician. So I think a physician feels like they're even a little more behind because of their typical age when they finish their training. And maybe they have a family and they want a bigger place for them to live. But the great thing is that if they want to buy a home, right, there's fantastic mortgage brokers out there that can do 0% down or 5% down for physicians. And they don't have to worry about saving 20% for a down payment on a house that's now, you know, I mean, 500 or 600,000 or more maybe for a first time home, depending on your market. And you're thinking, you know, you make good money, but saving up $100,000 of post-tax money takes a while. Sure. And with lots of mortgage brokers, I mean, Doug being one of them, I mean, you, you can just do these it's fairly, I just want to say quick, I'm sure it's a process, but you don't have to have all that money to put something down. You can do it earlier in the, in the, uh, in the process. True. And, you know, during that gap time that we were talking about earlier, I know a lot of people take the time to take their boards. Are there yeah. ever any contract caveats written in? to try and pay someone while they're studying for their boards or I don't know, maybe I'm asking for too much from employers on that standpoint, but. No. So we don't usually see, it depends, right? You could have written boards, oral boards. There could be multiple different types. It depends obviously when your boards are, if they could be earlier, they could be later. So I think it depends. Now, when we help physicians negotiate their contracts, pending their start date, pending when they have boards, if it's, you know, multiple different types. We always like to ask for a, you know, you have typically a week for CME per year in a contract, maybe more, maybe a little less, depending. We typically like to ask for more time in that first year if you need it with paid for board review course, board exam itself, studying, et cetera. We also like to ask for compensation for that. 
some employment, we've even seen a raise when you're board certified. So, you know, however they classify board certification, it may be like, look, I get paid X dollars. You know, I get paid $300,000 per year. Once I'm board certified, it goes to 320, right? That's gives a little extra effort, a little extra oomph for the physician to really, you know, to put some focus around something that's important to everybody. The employer wants it. The physician wants it. Likely might be a requirement for the physician, depending on. So we do see some things around board certification, but I think it just depends on specialty and your start date and when the transition process is going to be. And then moving into that first six to 12 months of being a new attending, do you have any benchmarks that you advise your contract clients on looking for to see if it's going to be the job for them, if they like it, if they're happy, if they're making the compensation they want? Yeah. Again, I think everybody goes into these first jobs with different expectations. We do talk with a lot of physicians two years, three years out of training, and they'll say, I know now what I didn't know then. And of course, I love asking questions. So I ask lots of questions. And some of the things that they'll tell me is, you know, I assumed it was going to be the flow of the clinic was going to be more smooth and it was more choppy, more broken up, right? Now, I assume that leadership or administration would have their ears open to my suggestions and ideas, and they weren't, or it was more of a process. I assumed that my practice would fill up very quickly, and it was a little more challenging for me to get some of the referrals that I was anticipating to be easier. I would even say I thought that the bonus would be easy to make, and it was super, super hard. And of course, there's the flip side of that, where someone says, oh my gosh, they thought it was going to be two years to ramp up, and in six months, I was there, Right. So, you know, I think it goes kind of on both ways. I think more physicians, though, come into the job with higher expectations than what's actually delivered. What's the phrase? Customer satisfaction, right? Or experience, if you will. Your ranking of the experience is your expectations less the result. So high expectations and mediocre results, there's going to be a gap, right? So I'm not saying everyone should go in with a low expectation of the position <laughs> and how things are going to work. But I think it's just reasonable to say, look, the first six months, they just might be messy, right? You're likely not going to be smooth on their EMR unless you already know it. It's going to take you a while to figure out the nuances with the staff, whether in the clinic or in the hospital. It's going to take you a little bit of time to understand the referral patterns of everybody and how you kind of break into that, unless you're taking over someone else's already established practice. It might take you a little bit more time to figure out your efficiency. You know, maybe you're a hospitalist and people are finishing their work at four and it's taking you till 6.30. I think that's okay, right? I think you should ego aside, ask a lot of questions, right? Talk to the staff, figure out what can I do to get more efficient? What can I do to work with you better? It's a nurse or an MA, right? I would say open yourself up to feedback and to dialogue because I think that's how people learn and can get moving and get up to speed even quicker than if they just, if they're closed off and saying, look, I'm a doctor. I know how to do it. I don't need any help. I think people who are open to that feedback can ramp up and be much more successful in a shorter time frame. I also think with the practice manager or anybody in administration, a medical director or a leader of the hospital, if you're sitting down reviewing your numbers on month three or month four or month six, open up to them, right? What could I be doing to meet expectations faster? What could I be doing to be more efficient in my clinic? Do you have any recommendations for me on how I could be better at X, Y, or Z? I think really putting yourself out there to learn and just kind of take that first six months to absorb everything and then put into practice the best policies, the best things that you hear, 
I think we'll make sure that you're a sponge that first six months, which I think we should be. And then I think it allows that next six months of that first year, which is vital to really get you moving to the tune that you want to be. I think those are all great words of advice. I guess I would say the same just as a physician to physician standpoint as well. Always ask questions. It is okay to be the new guy. It is okay not to know everything. No one expects you to. Yeah, just ask questions. Be a sponge. And you even said, don't wall yourself off. We've had, I'm a hospitalist, and we've had a few of the new guys, you know, sometimes they're there till seven, eight, nine o'clock at night trying to finish notes. And so in order to be more efficient, they'll go sit in the library to do their notes and they're just off by themselves. And I think that gives them a sense of loneliness and not being included. I know there's going to have to be some kind of balance, but involve yourself and those around you as much as you can and still get your work done timely. But I think you had great advice. Just ask questions, be a sponge. Yeah. And yeah, like you said, I mean, you know, it's a team sport. You know, I mean, <laughs> if you're a hospitalist, you're part of a team, right? If you're a surgeon, if you're the only surgeon in a hospital, you're part oh, of a yeah. team. If you're the only family practice physician in a whole community of 5,000 people and everyone's waiting six months to see you, you're part of a team, right? Now, you might be the quarterback or you might be one of the supporting tasks, but it's important to know that it's all part of a team. We could draw all kinds of sports analogies from basketball to football, depending on your specialty, but maybe we'll leave that for a different podcast. <laughs> I think that's good those first six months. Just to, again, just realize that you aren't going to have it figured out. Give yourself grace and find time to ask all of those questions. Yeah, I think it definitely gives you more opportunity to enjoy the job if you can give yourself some grace in that first six to 12 months. Yeah, but again, I think like, I think, you know, those first six months important, the second six months are important. And then from there, I think, you know, now we're a year in, okay, now I kind of know the first, now I kind of know, you know, the middle, if you will, as far as like where I should be and if I want to stick around and then, you know, moving beyond that, I think we can chat if you'd like, or we can just say like, you know, I think that after the first year, that second year, you really kind of start to find your rhythm. Most of the time, I rarely hear from physicians who want to leave their job after four months. But we do hear people say, it's just not what I expected. I can't stand it. I got to get out of here. Most physicians we talk with are like, you know, it's not what I expected, but I'm willing to give it a year to see if it irons out and then kind of make a decision from there. So I think I would say everyone should just give it a year, be patient, and evaluate throughout the way if it's giving you what you expected or what you need out of a career. You do a lot of counseling with the people that you're going over contract negotiation with. Your contract may have a five-year repayment plan for sign-on bonus or student loan repayment, but what if you want to leave in a year? Do you do a lot of counseling on that side? We do. And we start off by asking everybody what their story is, because some people may say, look, I'm only here for a year. And then my spouse is finishing their interventional cardiology year. And then we're moving to Texas, right? So I'm only going to be in St. Louis for one year. After they do their interventional year, we're moving to Texas to start our careers together, right? So yeah, that matters, right? Versus, oh, I'm going to be here forever and retire versus this is a partnership. So I'll take less money and be a partner in a couple of years if it's not bought out beforehand. So there's all kinds of stories that matter on how we, you know, kind of give that different pieces of advice on the contract itself or just on the career in general. I think all those things are really, really important. Makes sense. We definitely get into the weeds and talking about that stuff with the, with the client, which is, again, one of the many things that make our job fun. <laughs> well, off topic, you've been talking to me a lot about AI. 
Anything coming up? Yes. Oh my goodness. I know this Lots is your passion, stuff. learning so much Lots new right now. So yeah, I mean, it's changes so much. So to stay on topic with AI and yeah. healthcare contract reviews and not get distracted by how you can use it in the kitchen or how you can use it to develop a workout <laughs> plan or how you can use it to ask you questions about my kids not listening. What am I doing? I mean, it's fantastic for all those things. But strictly with contracts, I mean, there's a lot of potential, which I think is great. We've got some really good technology that we're going to build here, but nothing that we have right now. But what we're trying to do is we're going to be using it to analyze all of our data here, which is really, really cool. Be able to provide so much better input back to the physicians. And the way we will never take out the personal component, if you will, right? I've played around with it as far as like, obviously taking out anything um, proprietary in a contract saying, review this contract for five flags or give me top five negotiating points. And if four out of the five are just completely wrong, like it doesn't contain anything about tailing, about malpractice insurance, and it's right there in section four. It doesn't say how the doctor gets paid, and it says right there that we get paid $42 in our view. It says there's no non-compete, and gal darn it, there's a non-compete right there in section seven <laughs> that anybody can see. So I give it credit for some stuff, but when it comes to looking at contracts, um, so far, my experience with it has been terrible. It doesn't mean that we can't use it for other great things, um, but again, AI, I think, is a great tool but no different than I could show up and, and put all my stuff and it would say, John, here's my genetic makeup and here's my blood pressure and everything else that spits out. John, here's how to be healthy. You don't need a doctor anymore, right? You need you know, a physician's judgment to say, John, here's with your story and your numbers, here's what's best for you, right? And even though I can have labs done without my doctor, I can look them up with, and go to the internet and figure out if it's good or bad with my, with, without my doctor. Having that judgment from a physician to say, here's where I think you should really be with this. Here's how you should process this. Here's five questions you should ask yourself or ask based on your diet and everything else. I think that's something that we'll never be able to replace. Plus, we're fun. We love to make the process fun and educational. And that's something having that interaction that we thrive on. And I know our clients do as well. So I think AI is an amazing tool. I think it's going to completely revolutionize a lot of things in business and in healthcare in general but nothing that's going to be able to upload your contract and give you a comprehensive report. Well, I'm going to point everybody back to Coffee and Contracts with you because I know you've got several episodes coming up in the next few weeks talking about AI and you've just been having so much fun exploring it and what it might mean for the future. Yeah, it's really, really cool. So I'm excited to talk about it and explore it, put some tools to use on this end, but you pick up the phone and people will always answer at contract diagnostics. Call for a contract review and it'll always be with a person who has read thoroughly and understands your particular agreement and wants to hear your particular story. So I think it's an amazing thing, but I don't think it's going to replace physicians or radiologists or anything, any diamond in your future. Good deal. Well, thanks, John, for coming on the show and just talking to me about what to expect for residents and fellows in the next, you know, six to 12 months. I had a great time. As always, if anybody has any questions that you and I can talk about on the podcast or yeah, if I could shoot a copy of contracts about it, of course, have anybody send questions in. Tammy at Financial Residency, is that the email that they that should works. send this to? Sure. Okay. That's probably the best one. I check that every day. Cool. That sounds good. Well, thanks again, Tammy. I always love having the opportunity to hang out. Oh, you too. Oh, and I guess one last thing, phone number, yeah. website, if people wanted to get in touch with you for a contract review. So simple, contractdiagnostics.com, they can hit it, or they can email info at contractdiagnostics.com. 
I don't know our phone number. I know it's 888-something. <laughs> don't call it, so I don't know what it is. So I know it's on the website. Perfect. They can click through it. They can fill out all kinds of forms on the website from a text program, <laughs> consult call, to emailing in, to clicking on the number and it calls and Jane will answer it and they hang out with you. And I don't know what the number is, but they Perfect. can find us easily if they search for us on the internet. We're everywhere. So. Sounds good. Thanks for being on the show, John. All right. Of course, of course. Thanks, Tammy. Talk soon. And I hope you'll all tune in again next week for Grand Rounds.